You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Effects of Esoteric Development. This is Lecture 8, entitled The Guardian of the Threshold, Cain and Abel, given on March 27, 1913. As we draw closer to the processes experienced in spiritual development in the human astral body and I-being, we find it increasingly difficult to describe them. What we experience in these aspects of our human organization is distant from ordinary daily experiences. In our ordinary soul lives, we experience life in the astral body as the ebb and flow of passions, emotions, impulses, desires, and so on. Simultaneously, we feel that what the I collectively expresses is also our inner life. Yet what we experience is merely the reflection of the I and the astral body in the etheric and physical bodies, and not a conscious experience of the I and astral body. Actually, we cannot have any precise idea of the soul, that is, of our actual experience in our astral body and I in the higher worlds, through what we experience in the ordinary life. We must, therefore, have access to a kind of representation appropriate to the higher worlds. Imaginations must be accessible, and these imaginations must in fact be experienced. Do not imagine, however, that perception of clairvoyant imaginations is the only experience we can have. To a certain extent, it's not even the most important experience. Our inner experiences, the processes and inner trials of the soul when facing these imaginations, are most important. This is especially true of important and powerful imaginations, such as those described in the paradise imagination. When we truly experience the paradise imagination and can hold it before us as a reality, as something we have secured from higher experience, We feel caught up in an inner soul upheaval. We feel gripped by the inner uncertainty that we might deviate in one of the two directions described in the previous lecture. On the one hand, we feel powerfully attracted by all the passions and emotions resulting from our personal lives on the physical plane. Like a multitude of magnetic forces, our personal interests developed gradually on the physical plane and increase in power. On the other hand, we also feel something else. The closer we come to the paradise imagination, the more clearly we perceive it, and the more powerfully we are pulled in the direction of personal interests. The effect of these forces is to increasingly blot out the paradise imagination, or to put it another way, these forces prevent the imagination from revealing itself properly and thus we seem to become desensitized. Personal interests, emotions, feelings, impressions, and so on, that we harbor, are like many magnetic forces that also act as opiates. 
And when we attempt to reach the stage of self-education, where we increasingly observe the astral body, when the paradise imagination is experienced as outside of our physical and etheric bodies, that is, in the astral body and the eye, and when we have comprehended the nature and true character of the astral body, we recognize it as an egoist. At this stage of self-training, this egoism is justified only when we do not make the personal element displayed in the many forces the fundamental aspect of our self-interests, but instead make those interests common to humanity and make the cosmos more and more our own. At this stage of occult development, even as the eye forces become increasingly active in the astral body, which has now been freed, we feel something else asserting itself more and more as a counterbalance to the astral body's egoism. That is, we have a sense of increasing solitude, or icy solitude, which is also part of what we experience in this inner commotion. And this is what saves us from excessive egoism. If at this stage of occult development we feel the urge to be self-sufficient and self-contained, while also feeling a frosty solitude approaching, then we have trained properly. It is equally important to have this feeling as we gradually approach the paradise imagination. When these two forces cooperate, the egoism that extends itself to encompass world interests and the frosty solitude, we are coming closer to the experience of the paradise imagination. And when this imagination appears as living reality, it is also time for us to properly meet with the guardian of the threshold. It is difficult to briefly characterize the guardian of the threshold. I have already described this being several times in lectures. Our task today is not so much to characterize the guardian of the threshold as it is to describe experiences in the human eye and its sheaths. If, as we approach the paradise imagination, the picture becomes more and more vivid, and if we then meet the guardian of the threshold, we experience the powerful magnetic forces described. And as we come face to face with the guardian of the threshold, we feel, and this is a truly shattering experience, as though we are restrained or transfixed. This is because all of the magnetic forces that limit us to personal interests now have the strongest influence. Only when we have progressed enough, when we have learned from this icy solitude that we have the capacity to make universal interests our own, may we pass the guardian of the threshold. We could describe our feeling then as, quote, being united with the paradise imagination, close quote. We become one with it and experience being within it. This experience is like a feeling of justification in relation to universal interests. We can now acknowledge, yes, I may pursue my own interests because they are now cosmic interests, the interests of all human beings. If we do not pass the guardian of the threshold, however, if we have not acquired sufficient interests of a universal nature, it is because personal interests have claimed our attention, thus as 
Occultism puts it, we, quote, fail to pass the guardian of the threshold, close quote. When personal interests obscure the paradise imagination, we glimpse only isolated fragments, as it were, only vague, imperfect impressions. And we experience being pulled back again into personal life. It can also happen that we are allowed, to some extent, clairvoyant experiences, but these are actually illusions or maya, which may be quite misleading, because they are always permeated with or clouded by personal interests. Through such experiences we may come to understand, and thus take seriously, the fact that personal interests must be transformed into universal interests if we want to see the true reality of the spiritual world. We really cannot believe this is true before we have reached this stage of development, because personal interests weigh against this belief. The moment we meet the guardian of the threshold, however, we become conscious of the need to transform our personal interests. We have now reached a rather precarious point in describing occult requirements. I will, nevertheless, attempt to indicate the next steps as they appear from occult experience. I know that those listening are trying in some way to develop these things in themselves and to work further on them, and I will consider this as I proceed. These matters cannot be clothed in abstract ideas. Rather, we must try to retrieve what is revealed to clairvoyant vision. One must not imagine, however, that such clairvoyant vision can be represented schematically within a fixed framework. What I intend to describe is again a typical experience similar to the paradise experience. One must have actually experienced this to discover the true nature of knowledge and spiritual vision. Before this experience, one cannot have a real idea of or actually experience spiritual vision. But once an experience of this kind is described, we may understand it when we apply sound common sense. Allow me to describe it as it appears to clairvoyant vision. Let's assume we have passed the guardian and the threshold. We have celebrated becoming one with the paradise imagination and indeed have felt so totally united with it that the paradise imagination has become our own greater astral sheath. We can still sense our own astral body and know it is connected with our eye. But at the same time we know that this new astral body extends its interests to everything related to the beings of the paradise imagination. Once we have celebrated this union with the paradise imagination, we have the impression of perceiving our own astral body as a part of ourselves. And once we have adequately experienced what we described as icy solitude, this feeling becomes an inner force. This force saves us from contemplating only ourselves. This happens after we realize union with the paradise imagination. And this is how we create the organ needed to perceive other beings. Occult vision then views another being who makes a particular impression on us because that being appears like our own eye. We feel that this being is in our own eye, capital, and astral body. But this other being initially appears to us with its own eye and astral body, 
This is because the characteristics and forces that one brings to this encounter with the guardian enable that person to perceive the kind of being that manifests as an I-being and an astral body. We will then have another experience evoked by the frosty solitude we have learned to bear. The astral body and its energies will give the impression of wanting to strive upward. If I were to represent this diagrammatically, I would have to draw it as follows. As I have said, this is only a schematic rendering. I would draw the self as the nucleus of a comet, and the astral body as the tail shooting up and out. As I said, this is only a schematic representation. We really see a being, ourselves as a being, and this vision is much more complex than the perception of our physical being. At the same time, we also see the other being in its own eye. As I said, this is a typical experience. This simply means that the clairvoyant I, E-Y-E, initially sees this being. But we sense that this being is not in a sphere of icy solitude as we are, and consequently its astral body seems to be directed downward. It is very important to experience this, to feel as though in an astral body that opening and directing its streams of astral energy upward wants to stream upward to see the other being as an I-being whose astral body directs its forces downward. At this point, something else arises in self-consciousness in relation to this typical experience. It is something like saying, you are inferior, you are worth less than this other being. The value of this other being is its ability to open its astral body downward and to pour its forces downward, so to speak. Thus we get the impression that we have left the physical world whereas the astral forces of the other being are directed downward toward the physical world and work there as forces of blessing and benediction. In other words, we get the impression that we are faced with a being who may send what was acquired in the spiritual world to earth like a friendly rain. We ourselves cannot direct our astral body downward. Our astral body wants to work upward and we feel less worthy, because we cannot direct it downward. Furthermore, we feel that the consciousness that has arisen within us must lead to a spiritual accomplishment. A spiritual decision matures and urges us to place our loneliness before this second being, to war in our iciness with the warmth of the other being, and to unite with that being. We get the impression, momentarily, that our consciousness is being extinguished. We feel responsible for a kind of death of our own being, that we are somehow consumed by the fire of our own existence. And now our self-consciousness, which had felt extinguished, becomes aware of inspiration for the first time. We feel inspired as though we now experience an ordinary dialogue with the being we come to know only because that being grants us inspiration. If we can really understand what this being says as the voice of inspiration, we might translate what is said something like this. 
because you have found the path to the other and have united with the other's generous sacrifice. You may now return to earth within this being, and I will make you the guardian of this being on earth. One now gets the feeling that the soul has received something infinitely important through having been allowed to hear these words of inspiration. In the spiritual world there is a being more worthy than ourselves and permitted to send its astrality down as a blessing. We may unite with this being, and we may be its guardian after descending with it to earth. And through this experience we come to understand how as earthly physical beings we are actually related in our physical and etheric sheaths to the higher forces that permeate the eye and astral body. With our physical and etheric sheaths, we are guardians of what will further develop into higher spheres. Once we sense that our external being is the guardian of our inner being, this inner experience gives us a true insight into the relationship between the external sheaths and our inner being. What was just described is not a singular experience, and after we have passed the guardian of the threshold, another follows. Recall that I started by describing the purely clairvoyant and inspired experience we may have while outside the physical and etheric bodies, when we successfully unite with the paradise imagination and receive the inspiration that gives us our first idea of the relationship between the sheaths and the eye. Having passed the guardian of the threshold, a second impression is added. One gazes past the guardian of the threshold to the physical world below. I have indicated with a line the boundary between the higher spiritual worlds and the physical world. Above is the realm of the spiritual world and below the physical world. Now, as we look down into the physical world, another image is revealed that is, a picture of ourselves here on earth. We perceive our own astral body, which now appears as if in a reflection, but is directed downward. It does not try to direct its energies toward the spiritual world, but clings, as it were, to the physical plane without aspiring to the heights. We also see the reflection of the other being whose astral body streams upward. We sense that this astral body is flowing into the spiritual world. We see ourselves and the other, and we sense that we are in the physical world again. In place of the other being, a very different human being is there, a person who is better than us, and whose astral body strives upward, rising like smoke. Our own astral body strives toward the earth, moving downward like smoke. As we look down, we have the sense of a self living in us, and we have this terrible impression that a resolution is slowly maturing within, a dreadful resolve and willingness to kill the other who is superior. We know that this decision does not come wholly from the I, capital, because the I lives in the spiritual world. It is another being that speaks through us here on earth and urges us to kill the other. 
Again, we hear the voice that previously inspired us, but now it is like a voice filled with vengeance, asking, quote, Where is your brother? Close quote. And from this lower self, a voice erupts and answers. Previously, inspiration said, quote, Because you have united yourself with the friendly powers of the other being, you will pour your friendly powers toward earth and I will appoint you guardian of the other being. Now this being, recognized as one's I, answers, quote, I do not want to be my brother's keeper. First, the determination to kill the other arises. Then one protests the voice that inspired us, saying, quote, Because you want to unite your iciness with the warmth of the other being, I appoint you guardian of the other. And then the words come in protest, quote, I do not want to be the keeper of another. Once we have had this imaginative experience, our knowledge has reached the human soul's capacity. Most of all, we know that the noblest virtues of the spiritual world, when distorted to their opposite, may be the most destructive on the physical plane. We know that in the depths of the human soul, through the corruption of the most noble willingness for self-sacrifice, the desire to kill one's neighbor may arise. From this moment on, but only from this moment of realization, we know the meaning of the story of Cain and Abel in the Bible. The story of Cain and Abel is simply a representation of an occult experience. Indeed, it is exactly what I just described. If conditions in human development had existed at the time that allowed the author of the story of Cain and Abel to describe what had happened before the expulsion from paradise, that first experience, as shown in the upper part of our diagram, would have been described. The account, however, begins with the story of paradise and describes the reflected image. Described above, in the diagram, is Cain's feeling toward Abel before earthly development reached the point indicated in the story of paradise. After the temptation and loss of vision regained through the paradise imagination, Cain's readiness for self-sacrifice changed into the desire to kill the other. This had now become a reality on earth, on earth. And the cry recorded in the Bible, quote, Am I to be my brother's keeper? Close quote, is the reply to the other inspiration, quote, I will appoint you on earth as guardian of the other. Close quote. From this description you will understand that these typical experiences are important. They establish a particular union between what we may be today and the interests most common to all human beings. At the same time, however, they show us very dearly that in our experience of the ebb and flow of soul life, the main thing is to recognize how humanity made this huge leap forward in development, the leap from what I described as the first pre-earthly imagination to what the story of Cain and Abel represents as a human evolutionary event after the expulsion from paradise through which the guardian of the threshold became invisible to human beings. Awareness of this leap forward in human development really shows us the nature of an earthly human being. 
As we experience deeply what has just been described, we gradually realize that earthly humanity as we know it today is a distortion of what it was in ancient times. That is, if nothing else had intervened, we know for certain what would have become of us. If we had simply continued along this course of earthly development without interference, we would have known the source and substance reflected in the story of Cain and Abel here on earth. But we were not allowed to know this at first. Only now in our present epoch are human beings permitted to know that the story of Cain and Abel reflects a great sacrifice. Everything that was in the spiritual world, all that existed before the fall, was veiled. The guardian concealed it from us when, with other words, human beings were driven out of paradise. This could happen only because the human physical and etheric bodies were permeated with forces to the degree that human beings no longer accomplished what appeared in the reflection, that is, the spiritual world's intention. They would have certainly accomplished it if they had fully experienced the astral body. The physical and etheric bodies dull human beings so that their wish to kill the other is not realized. Consider what this simple sentence means. Because the friendly divine spiritual powers provided human beings with a physical and etheric bodies that prevent them from looking back, a kind of numbness blanketed the desire to engage in the war of all against all. This desire is inactive in the soul because the human physical and etheric bodies have been prepared so that the wish is stifled. Human beings cannot see their astral body. Therefore, this wish remains unknown to them. They do not act on it. If we really want to describe the interaction between the astral body and the eye, we must picture things that are concealed from human nature and furthermore must stay that way. What has happened then as a result of this restricting of the desire to kill and of similar wishes to destroy and annihilate community life and other forms of cooperative life on the physical plane? These desires have become weakened. Human souls sense them only slightly in a weakened form. What is true earthly knowledge? It is our dim feeling of the desires that would wreak havoc if human beings were to give them, in their full reality, free reign. Allow me to define for you the meaning of human earthly knowledge. It consists of the blunted impulses of destruction, of Shiva in his most terrifying aspect, but blunted and impoverished so that human earthly knowledge cannot fully express them. They have been reduced to the realm of human ideas. Footnote, Shiva is one of the primary Hindu gods, representing the forces of destruction and cosmic dissolution. Kali, dark goddess, is the female representation of those forces. End of footnote. This is the inner maya, knowledge of the human being. This knowledge had to be weakened. Similarly, the impulses and inner forces had to be weakened, so that the original destructive aspect governed by Araman, Araman originally provoked this desire, would be sufficiently emasculated so that human beings would not become his victims and thus become permanent servants of Shiva. The totality of these forces had to be weakened so that they ruled only insofar 
as passing among human beings as ideas and concepts. When we try to impose an idea upon another person, we are trying to implant our own concept into another person. This concept we have implanted into another person is the blunted weapon that Cain plunged into Abel. And because this weapon was blunted, what was suddenly transformed into its opposite was able to enter evolution. Thus, instead of developing destructive impulses prohibited in the physical world, human beings slowly developed through reinforcement of their knowledge. First we develop factual knowledge, then imaginative knowledge, which enters into the being of another, then inspired knowledge, which penetrates more deeply into the being of the other, and finally intuitive knowledge, which enters fully and lives on spiritually in the other being. In this way we gradually struggle through to an understanding what this I really is. In its innermost nature the astral body is a great egoist, but the I is more than a great egoist. It wants not merely to be a self, it wants to be a self in the other, to actually enter into the other. The knowledge acquired on earth is this weakened desire to enter the other, to extend all that one is, not merely in oneself, but beyond the self into the other. It is the intensification of egoism beyond itself, beyond its narrow limitations. If you want to keep in mind the origin of this knowledge, you will understand that there is always the possibility of misusing it, because if this knowledge is a true knowledge of the I, as soon as it goes astray it is immediately misused. Only when we progress farther and gain a more spiritual understanding of the other, and when we extend the horizon of the astral body to universal interests, will we succeed in renouncing all constraint over the other. When we allow others to exist as completely autonomous and value their interests over our own, only then are we mature enough to rise to higher knowledge. We cannot recognize a being of the hierarchy of the angels unless we have reached the stage when we are more interested in the inner being of the angels than in our own being. As long as we are more interested in our own being than in that of the angels, we cannot recognize them. We must first open ourselves to universal interests, and then to interests that go even farther, and then we may consider them more important than ourselves. The moment we try to develop farther in occult knowledge, while considering ourselves more important than others, we want to know, in that moment we stray. If you follow this line of thought, you come to a true picture of what black magic is. It begins where occult activity is practiced openly by those who are not in a position to expand their self-interests into world interests, who are unable to give greater importance to the interests of others. In reality, we can point to these things only to hint at the ideas, ideas so profound that we can only touch on them. I wanted to show the possibility of gradually coming to recognize the true nature of the astral body and I that dwell within ourselves and not in Maya. What human beings experience inwardly as their astral body is not the true astral body, 
It is only the astral body reflected in the etheric body. What human beings call the self is not the true I, but only the I reflected in the physical body. A human being only experiences reflections of the inner being. If, before becoming mature enough, we were to experience the substance and form of our own astral body and I, destructive impulses would arise within us. We would become aggressive beings, motivated by the desire to harm. These matters form the basis of black magic. Although the paths followed by black magic are very diverse, the result is always a kind of alliance with Araman or Shiva. We come to know the astral body and I in their true form only when we acknowledge the necessity of their development and when we recognize that they must become worthy of their destiny. The essential nature of the astral body is egoism. Our ideal must be to be allowed to be egoistic, however, because the interests of the world have become our interests. Our ideal must be to be allowed to enter the other being, because it is our firm intent not to use the other for our own ends, but to honor the other as more important than ourselves. Self-education must be sufficiently developed to feel this upper picture in all its esoteric and moral significance. Self-education must gradually transform this picture, that is, ourselves, so that our emotions, impulses, desires and passions are no longer stirred. By becoming familiar with the astral body, we become comfortable in frosty solitude and thus open ourselves to the warmth, to the warm interest that radiates from other beings and seek to unite with the friendly forces coming from them. Here we are shown the first step that allows us to raise ourselves gradually to the higher hierarchies in their true form. We do not attain to the beings of the higher hierarchies if we are unworthy to face the imagination and inspiration I have described. And we cannot develop spiritually if we cannot tolerate their counterparts, that is, the propensities hidden in the depths of human nature. Excuse me, let me read that again. And we cannot develop spiritually if we cannot tolerate their counterparts, that is, the propensities hidden in the depths of human nature cast down from the spiritual world into the physical world. And if we do not want to view the double image of Cain and Abel, or the lower self and the image of our higher self, which at the same time is the mediator between ourselves and the higher hierarchies, but when we can cultivate in ourselves the feeling indicated here, we experience our I, and from the eye as our point of departure, we can gain access to the higher orders of the hierarchies. The end of Lecture 8